Today we're going to be talking about the Christ-likeness of Christ. The Christ-likeness of Christ. Sounds a bit odd, and that's on purpose because sometimes something that sounds a bit odd might be most helpful. What do I mean by the Christ-likeness of Christ? Well, Christ means King, Messiah. So we're talking about the fact that the King is actually kingly, that He's not king in name only. Uh, The one we call Jesus Christ is Jesus the King. And he has the title Jesus the King because he, in fact, is the King. And he proves that he is the King over and over and over again, that it's not in name only that we call him Christ, but he's legitimate. And if he's the legitimate King, the one that history's been waiting for, the one that was long ago prophesied and again and again prophesied, it means you should trust in him. It means you should trust in Him to deliver you as the good King Shepherd uh, from your sins ultimately and all of its effects. And so this morning what we're going to be doing is looking at Jesus, seeing that He doesn't make empty professions, that His followers don't uh, wrongly call Him Christ, and that it is only reasonable, good, and profitable for you and for your soul to trust in Him for life eternal and to live for His honor and for His glory. So if you have a Bible, you can join the rest of us who are already there, the overachievers, uh, and the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Pretty predictable, uh, because as a church, we're studying through this Gospel account, and uh, again and again, we're seeing that Jesus is legitimate, and therefore we want to worship Him and trust in Him. So what we're going to do this morning is look at Matthew 14, or the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 to 36, And as we do so, the structure I'm going to follow would be to highlight seven acts of Christ where he acts Christ-like. Seven acts of Christ where he acts Christ-like. I didn't practice that when I wrote that down. Kind of hard to say. Might need to do a little wordsmithing next time. Seven acts of Christ where he acts Christ-like. And we're going to even see in our, in our text, it compels worship. So it should compel our worship. But it also compels trust, confidence, belief, rest. And so I hope when we leave here today, we see he's legitimate once again. And we're compelled to want to worship him because we're trusting in him as the ultimate good, forever reigning, saving king. Ready to go? I hope you're ready to go. I'm so ready to go. Okay, number one, the first Christ-like act is Christ acts Christ-like in healing and showing compassion. In healing and showing compassion. Verse 13, if you look there with me, it reads as follows. Now when Jesus heard this, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So when he heard this, it takes us way back to the beginning of the chapter, when he heard that Herod, the tetrarch, Herod the ruler, the governor, that Herod was hearing about how famous Jesus was getting, that he was getting panicky, he was getting nervous, he was thinking that it was John the Baptist's ghost come back from the dead to haunt him. And so what that tells us is Jesus is getting really popular. Okay, Jesus is getting famous. Uh, people are really talking about Jesus so much so even Herod is concerned about this Jesus. And so what Jesus does, knowing that he's uh, growing in popularity, he wants to get away from it. 
So what he does is he goes from one side of the Sea of Galilee, seemingly, as we will see, the west side of the Sea of Galilee, where he spends so much of his time in that region, to the east side of the Sea of Galilee via boat to get away from the crowds. With that in mind, let's go ahead and look at verse 13 where it goes on to say, But when the crowds heard it, so they must have been hearing the disciples talking or Jesus talking to them. The, the crowds hear that he's going to the other side to get away. We're going to see they heard where they were going. Keep reading there. They followed him on foot from the towns. So he's going to go from west side to east side via boat straight across or thereabouts. And what are they going to do on foot? They're going to go around and meet him there. Okay? Maybe they're going to go this way, um, but it's probably shorter to go this way based upon where he probably is. Capernaum's up on the upside. So, surprise! Hi, Jesus! Right? They're, they're going to be there. Word is out. And word is out in the masses, as we're going to see. 10,000 plus people, conservative estimate. And so word is really out. It is going to be quite the Twitter mob. Okay? I don't know how they did it back then, uh, but word is out. Let's get there. Okay, that, that's what's going on in this section. John chapter 6, verse 2, which is a different camera angle of the same event, says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. If you're just joining us, Sea of Galilee, northern region of Israel, it is roughly uh, 8 miles wide by about 13 in length. So eight miles, to give you some point of reference, from this building to the Mormon Bridge is about six miles. Uh, so I looked for another point of interest. Uh, the airport is about eight miles from here. So width of the Sea of Galilee, uh, lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth, sometimes called the Lake of Tiberias, uh, sometimes also called Lake Kinneret. And so he's going from one side to the other. It's pretty sizable. There are bigger lakes. But eight miles is, is a pretty decent size to go from one side to another. They call it a sea, by the way, even to this day, because it can become so rough. Then verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And in my margin, well over 10,000, as we will see later on. So it's a massive crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. First, notice the compassion. What would you do if you were mobbed by the crowds? Need, 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 need. And you said, we're going to get away from the popularity. We're going to get on a boat to go to the desolate side. And you see 10,000 plus people. I'll tell you what I would do. I would pretend like I didn't see him and go back the other way. <laughs> Good head fake. Um, and I think I care about people. But I care about myself a lot too. Application, don't trust in me. Application, I'm not a good savior. Application, I'm not the Christ, and neither is anyone else. Jesus, even the wording that he uses, earnestly, he, he, he cares for them earnestly from the, from the depth of his being in all sincerity, not because he's looking for more votes. Okay? He, it's a word that we were grossed out by from, from his bowels. But first century, it, it, it's the very depth of your being, earnestness. He really cares. And so application in that sense would be don't trust in someone other than that kind of savior who's not only a king, he's a good shepherd king who actually truly cares for the needs of the people. That's compelling. 
It really is compelling. And do notice he heals them. So there's this earnestness. He has compassion and then he heals their sick. And that only goes to form. We've been seeing this again and again and again and again. Messiah heals. So Malachi chapter 4 would just be one example of many texts. When the ultimate Messiah comes, he will bring salvation from sin and its effects. So ultimately, it's going to be suffering, it's going to be death, it's going to be disease. He is going to reverse the effects of the fall, and he's going to bring restoration for his people, salvation in the grandest sense. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 21, which I do every week for you, um, he came to save his people from their sins. And we're seeing their sins and all of its bad consequences. He's the one. He heals them. I would also point out to you the fact that Mark's gospel account says he's teaching the people in addition to those things. Luke's gospel account says he's teaching them about the kingdom of God in addition to these things. And so Jesus doesn't uh, leave well enough alone. It's not like he does the healing and says, you know, make of this whatever you want. Whatever your truth is, you just spin it however you want to spin it. No, it's tied to kingdom, right? It's tied to the fact that he's the Messiah, tied to the fact that he's the king. And so the king will do this. It's pointing to him as the Christ-like Christ, the legitimate Christ who actually can do these things. This is, this is new creation stuff. Kingdom stuff is new creation stuff. Even though he hasn't returned second coming yet, we're getting previews of things. And he's doing this again and again and again and again. He's the Christ. He's making it clear he's the Christ. Before we move on, just a word or two about healing. And that is uh, to say a, a, a couple of things. These healings were real, verifiable. People are coming in droves. This isn't the only occasion. It's been happening throughout his earthly ministry. Real. But they're not ultimate. None of these people who were healed then are still around today. Okay? They caught something else. They got something else or died of old age, which the point is all of these people died. Okay. These are previews. These are showing that he is that king, but this king ultimately will bring deliverance, ultimate healing in resurrection. Okay. These, these are previews of coming attractions. Okay. This one has to go to the cross to atone for sin because Death comes as a result of sin. He will have to make atonement. Because he's going to, this can be happening. But for it to be lasting, he will have to go and make atonement for sin. And he will finish out his earthly ministry having done everything right. So that he too, after he's crucified, will be resurrected. Because he's Jesus Christ the righteous. First Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 talks about his resurrection because he's righteous. And so ultimate healing, ultimate resurrection is going to come when his work is ultimately done. But these are previews of coming attractions, if you will. And so it's never meant to be lasting. It's never meant to be the ultimate end game. It's never meant to have this ongoing healing. It's anticipating the ultimate healing, which comes only through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that's not what you hear on charismatic television. It's ultimately going to be resurrection power, his resurrection power. And I want to say to you again, don't look to anyone else other than him because he and he alone offers health that actually does last forever. It will last forever for you 
when you're resurrected from the dead. Ready to move on to number two? Let's go. Number two. Next, Christ acts Christ-like in providing. He acts Christ-like in providing. Christ the King acts kingly or messiahly in providing for his people. Look at verse 16, or excuse me, verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. My question for you is, what, what, do, you, what do you make of that? What I make of it, and I don't know a lot, is it's kind of gutsy to be informing Jesus of the obvious. And it's even more gutsy to speak in the imperative with Jesus. Probably not advisable, okay? Um, But that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. To make it even more interesting, again, let's look at the different camera angle from John's gospel account. In response to that, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? John 6, 6 says, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Of course he knew. He's Jesus, the sovereign. He's Jesus, the Messiah. But, but he's getting them to say things so that they can understand and learn better. He's in control of the whole thing. He knew exactly what was going on. He's the trustworthy one. Very, very interesting. Very Christ-like of him, even to know exactly what he's going to do. Verse 16 then says, But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And I love that too. I like his command mode better than their command mode. And you know what's going to happen? In effect, they're going to say, We can't. And in effect, Jesus is going to say, That's right, and don't you ever forget it awesome. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic what's happening here. It's a setup. <laughs> it's a sanctified setup is what this whole thing is. It's wonderful. And we're benefiting from it. 17, they said to him, even the, the verbiage in the Greek text, they, they, they're saying to him, This isn't just a one-time thing. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. We have five small buns and two fish. We have one young boy's lunch that his mom packed for him. That's what we have. I eat more, ten times this as a midnight snack. Okay? So, we can't. We lack the ability to do what you're telling us. Uh Uh-huh. Yep, yep. And by the way, Jesus, even in the 21st century, Israel doesn't have DoorDash. But I digress. I checked yesterday. We can't meet the needs of the people. It's exactly where they need to be. Then verse 18 says, here it is. This is the grand text of this section. And Jesus, and he said, bring them here to, here's the emphasis, me. Bring them to me. 
Disciples are special. Disciples are unique. These will be called the apostles. I'm not trying to denigrate them or downplay them. But make sure you understand. Make sure we all understand that they lack the ability to do what only Jesus can do. And that would be to meet the unique needs of his people. Even the great apostles, even these disciples couldn't do it. It has to be him. They are, they're going to need to preach Christ, not themselves, as would be true of us. 19 says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he took them up to heaven. He looked up to heaven, excuse me. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the, to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And they had the best fish they'd ever had in their whole life. 5,000 men plus women and children. Most commentators say at least 15,000. I was just being conservative and I said 10,000. It's a huge group of people. Huge group of people to be provided for uniquely and to the point of being satisfied. Christ is acting Christ-like. Messiah provides for all the needs of his people so that they are satisfied by his goodness. He's not a tyrant king. He's a good shepherd king who makes sure his people are taken care of. And so I too would say to you, don't look to me. Don't look to someone else. Don't look to your favorite Bible preacher, teacher, religious leader, mentor. Ultimately, you look to Christ and any good religious leader, mentor would tell you to do the same thing. That's what these disciples are learning to do here. One commentator said, As God provided manna for Israel in the wilderness in the days of Moses, so Jesus provides bread for the people in this remote place. I think that's good and right. And then I'm going to respond and say, in in agreement, then I'm going to say, and Jesus is greater than Moses. And then I'm going to go even further and say, and Jesus is greater than bread. And hopefully you can agree with me that, with that just in general, but hopefully you can agree with me saying that even more so when you know this. The very next thing to happen chronologically, it's recorded in John's account, not Matthew's account, but on the heels of this, and because of this, we have the great bread of life discourse. Jesus will use this to move forward and he'll say, I am the bread of life. Believe in me for eternal life. It's awesome. It's really great to see the connection. I'll just sample the text for you. Chapter 6 of John's Gospel account, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what we saw in Matthew's gospel account on purpose anticipates something greater. Jesus is actually the bread. And in that text, the point, if you read all of chapter 6, he equates believing with eating. 
Okay? So eating the bread for physical nourishment, and Jesus says, if you believe, you will have eternal life, not just temporal, physical life. Jesus is the master teacher. It's impressive. He provides for his people physically, yes, but ultimately something that will last forever into eternity. He will provide. He's the bread of life. I've got so much more. I have to make decisions about what to do next. By way of application, remember again, don't, don't look to great leaders. Make sure you look to Christ because those great leaders might pursue Christ-likeness, but only in a certain way, right? Christ is the Christ who pursues Christ-likeness because he's perfectly Christ-like. He's the Messiah. Look to him. Now, just a couple of words, and I promise some of these will go faster. Um, but just a couple of words, uh, uh, comments and thoughts about how other people who have um, been anti-supernaturalists have interpreted this um, and how sadly it's showing up even among supernaturalists today. And I take every opportunity I have to talk about this because it's plaguing the believing church. When people in history have decided they don't believe in miracles... So they don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the supernatural or miracles, the deity and humanity of Christ, the historicity, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Um, they'll also not believe that he fed the 5,000 from next to nothing, supernaturally. But sometimes religious people still like their structure and they still like their paychecks if they're clergy. And they still like their social uh, activities if they're social people. And they still like their buildings. And so they'll still read the scripture and they'll still say they're Christians. Um, but they put a whole new spin on it because they're anti-supernaturalists. And I've read multiple writers and I've met multiple people actually um, who, who've taken this spin. Well, you know, the true miracle here. The true miracle isn't that Jesus supernaturally did something. The true miracle was this sweet little boy. And the sweet little boy shared. And then all of the other people who were stingy, who weren't willing to share, saw his great example. And then everyone shared. And the true miracle here is the miracle of human worth and dignity and human sharing. Let's write a poem. <laughs> And sing, all we are saying, it, or something like that, right? Now, that makes me angry because it's, not, it's clearly not what we saw. And it's clearly an affront to authentic, genuine, legitimate Christianity. And, and, and it just makes me furious. But here's the problem. Oftentimes, we who believe the Bible is true, and more and more so, we're sounding like them. We're sounding like them. We're sounding like them when we say things like this. As I saw on a billboard this week, we make faith practical. That sounds like theological liberalism of old. I want to make a billboard because I'm a contrarian and I'm kind of grumpy sometimes that says, Omaha Bible Church, we make faith impractical. <laughs> I don't mean that. I don't really mean that, but for shock value, here's what I mean. 
Here's what I mean. The Bible, first and foremost, the gospel accounts, let's just start with Matthew. It's not about anything other than the grand reality that he, Jesus, chapter 1, came to save his people from their sins. It is about he being supernatural, doing the extraordinary. There's no one else like him. He will be raised from the dead. And that you need to trust in him for your resurrection or there will be condemnation. And as soon as I start saying, well, actually... Matthew's gospel account is about your life and the practical things of life. And and we start saying things like, the Bible is the answer book to life. Well, if you mean by that how to gain eternal life, I'm with you. But if you mean by that it tells you everything, it's not true. Even the Protestant reformers who championed the sufficiency of Scripture, recovering uh, all of its abuses, when they talked about the sufficiency of Scripture, they did not mean sufficient for absolutely everything in life. They meant for how to know, how to have eternal life and how to grow in godliness is what they meant. Because there are a lot of other things we need to do in life that the Bible doesn't address. The Bible's not trying to, do, to address these things. It's addressing redemption. And so, in so many ways, the practicality here, sharing might be good and I could prove it with Bible verses, but that has nothing to do with this text. The practical, you know why we make the, the faith practical at Omaha Bible Church is your greatest need in this life and in the next is to have your sins forgiven so that God would accept you and to have Christ's righteousness given to you by faith so you have eternal life. Okay, this is why the apostle Paul would say, we resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we need. That's what we need. Not that the Bible doesn't offer other wisdom, Not that the Bible doesn't offer us other things, but we ought not forget that the Bible is ultimately about the drama of redemption. He came to save his people from their sins. It's about the Christ-likeness of you and me. Actually, no. First and foremost, it's about the Christ-likeness of Christ. Now, as a result of that, in certain ways, we want to be like him. In ways we can be, there are a lot of ways we can't be. Because he and he alone is the Savior. Growing problem, huge problem. Think about all the things you're going to do today and the decisions you're going to make today that the Bible doesn't address. Praise God that he gave you a sound mind, if he did. Praise God that he gave you common sense. Praise God that he gave you wisdom and he gave you a conscience. And he has you living amidst other people that you can learn from. Those are all good things from God. They're all good things from God. Well, in one sense, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. But in another sense, when my family is going looking for a church and it's all about how the Bible applies to everyday life, at best I'm nervous. At best I'm nervous. Yes, I need help with my life, but it is going to come in light of the gospel and what Christ has done. And that's a result of the gospel and what Christ has done. Maybe I'm overstating things. Preachers do that. Shock value, yes. But we need to see clearly the text for what it's actually saying. This is designed to get you to be impressed with Jesus and to trust in him. I feel like I should close in prayer, but I probably shouldn't. (laughs) 
Let's go to number three. Okay, the next next one. I promise we'll go quicker. Christ acts Christ-like in doing His Father's will. He acts Christ-like in doing His Father's will, and we're going to see this in particular in His praying. Verse twenty-two says, "Immediately He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, while He dismissed the crowds." Why is he doing this? We could speculate all day long until someone said, look at John's gospel account, it tells us. Okay, good. John's gospel account tells us why things are in a rush here. John chapter 6 verse 15 says this, Jesus perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. They're going to make him Christ. A different kind of Christ though. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So that answers the question. Why rush the disciples off? Why is he going to go to the mountain to pray? Because he knows supernaturally that the crowds, the 10,000 plus, are going to make him king by force, the wrong kind of king. The kind of king that doesn't have to go through crucifixion. The kind of king that doesn't have to be resurrected. And if he's that kind of king, he's not faithful to his father's will. He was sent to earth to save his people. And he can't save his people without finishing his earthly work and going to Calvary and being raised from the dead. That would be a different kind of king. And so Jesus is going to go pray. Pressure's coming, right? Pressure's coming from from all of the people. And so he needs to... I'm going to be careful how I say this. I don't think he was ever off track. But he's compelled to go and talk to his father in light of the pressure, being careful how I say things, because he was always perfect. He goes. It says in verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on, on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Based upon all the things that are happening and time stamps, he's there from somewhere between 9 and 12 hours. What do you suppose he prayed? Well, I think one really, 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 really good guess based upon what he taught and what he modeled. Father, your will be done. Among whatever else he prayed, he was sent to do the Father's will. The will of the masses is to make him a different kind of king. His Father's will is to make Him the saving King who came down from heaven. Surely, He's the faithful Son like no one else has ever been a faithful Son. He is the faithful Son. Again, John six thirty eight. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. 39 says something similar. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And you don't raise anything up on the last day when you're dealing with sinners unless you are the one providing the resurrection power. Indeed, his will is to have his son go to the cross. For sinners like you and for sinners like me, he, the Christ, is Christ-like on behalf of the devotion to his father and on behalf of the fact that he loves his people and he said he would lose none of them. Talk about practical, regardless of what you're going through, tomorrow or the next day or whenever. 
Jesus Christ is the Christ. He's faithful. He was faithful to his Father even on my behalf that his will would be done and I would be raised. He's a great Savior. You can face anything if you just think clearly about these things. He should be trusted. Number four, Christ acts Christ-like in sovereign power. Sovereign power. When I say sovereign, what I mean is royal. It's a royalty word. Uh, Kings and queens are sometimes called sovereigns. It means they have a lot of power and they do what they want to do. And if you're an ultimate sovereign, as he is the king of kings, the ultimate Messiah, he has ultimate sovereignty. He can do whatever he wants. He has the power to do whatever he wants obviously in alignment with his Father's will. And so we read here, here, let's read about the sovereign power. Verse 24, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. How about a show of hands from anybody who's been in a severe storm on a boat before? Some. Maybe we could swap stories later. I don't want to ruin your lunch talking about hundreds of people vomiting on a boat. Oh, I just did it. Um, can be a frightening thing. Can be a frightening thing. And obviously Jesus has been, has been praying for a long time now. And so even the wording that's used, it can, it's beating their boat. It's, it's, it's a word that could be translated torturing. There's sinister intent uh, describing the, the waters. Interesting. If only Jesus would have looked at the forecast. I say with sarcasm. Actually, in verse 22, he sends them immediately. Timestamp. I would suggest to you that Jesus actually knew the forecast. And this is going to be for their good. He sends them intentionally, knowing all things. No bad luck here. But it is a severe scenario. It reminds me, if you're wondering why Jesus would have them face something torturous and terrible, it reminds me of a psalm we read a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 119, where it says this, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That might tweak your view of God a little bit, and that might be helpful. God does everything that he does for the good of those who belong to him, Romans 8 would say. But in faithfulness, the psalmist says, God, you've afflicted me. The Lord Jesus Christ, if that's what's going on here, because he's faithful, is actually subjugating them, exposing them to affliction for their better good. And I would suggest ultimately for our better, better good. Might be mysterious to us when it's happening, but he's sovereign in what's happening. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. The Jews have three watches. The Romans have four watches. So it's obviously according to Roman time. And that would be between three and six o'clock in the morning. So they've been at it for a long time. Verse 25 then says, walking on the sea. Read, sovereign over creation. In charge, in control. Christ is acting Christ-like. He's having dominion over the earth like only he could have dominion over the earth as the last Adam. Sovereign over creation. Verse 26 says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Remind you of anybody else we just read about? They're getting in touch with their inner Herods. right? This This is a similar kind of thing. 
27 says, but immediately, oh, there's that marker that we saw back in verse 22, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, be encouraged, be of good cheer, a word that can be translated for for cheer, happiness, take heart, don't be afraid. In other words, it is I, don't be afraid. Such great words. Think how, that, how sweet the words would have been to them. Jesus, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the storm. Don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid. It is I. Resembling, really, really, really resembling the way God speaks of Himself in the Old Testament. It is I. Especially if we notice the Greek version, the Septuagint. It is I. As in the great I am. Don't be afraid. It is I. I'm the sovereign. I'm the one true and living God. Come from heaven as the ultimate one, the eternal son. You don't need to be afraid. Think about that. If you're trusting in him, ultimately nothing can harm you apart from his perfect sovereign will. And even that is ultimately for you because resurrection is in the end. This could embolden them. This is training them. This is helping them. I hope it's emboldening you and helping you. It's very reassuring. Number five, Christ acts Christ-like in willing deliverance. In willing deliverance. And this is 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Some commentators say, before we criticize Peter, note his courage. I'm not so sure. (laughs) I'm not so sure the intent of the passage is for us to admire Peter's courage. I mean, maybe. Maybe the verdict's out, but... 29, he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus has him right where he wants him. Even if it's through the vehicle of Peter's foolishness. I don't know. Save me. Obviously, rescue me, deliver me from this physical turmoil. But I remind you, it's no accident as we've been seeing the pattern from physical to spiritual. Jesus is named Jesus 121 because he came to save his people from their sins. He's saving him here temporarily, but it certainly leads us to believe that he's capable of doing something great, saving him spiritually. Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out. Again, I love the immediately. He immediately reached out his hand and took took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt He delivers, he saves, he's the Christ. Look to him, don't look to something else or to yourself or even, as we would learn from this, circumstances. Let's move on as we get things wrapped up. Number six, Christ acts Christ-like in accepting worship. In accepting worship. 32 says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And I'm going to follow the pattern immediately, immediately, immediately. Timestamp, timestamp, timestamp. And now they get into the boat, stops. as as fingerprints of supernatural. 
It's, it's not, oh, wow, that was a nice coincidence. It's not meant to be read that way. He gets in the boat, they get in the boat, it's over, it's done, it stops. Something extraordinary has happened because someone extraordinary is there. 33 says, and those in the boat worshipped him. They didn't say, oh, what a coincidence, now we worship. No, it's, what in the, what, what in the world? Or what from heaven <laughs> has come into this world? They worship. They value him above themselves. They ba- value him above all others. He's the unique, extraordinary one. So ascribe ultimate worthiness or worth to him. He's the one who can save. He just saved Peter. He rescued him. And now he's sovereign over even the created order. They worship him. And we should notice that Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, no, stop that. So it's only for God. He's the Christ. He's the ultimate one. He actually is worthy of worship. He's not only human, he is human. He's also divine, the God-man. Truly you are, they say, the Son of God. Truly you are. I would love to look at Psalm 107 where you see uh, God being sovereign over creation and calamity and seas and the result is worship. But we won't take the time to do that. Do that. That's Psalm 107. Um, I, I want to mention just one more, again, camera angle from John. And I like, I, it's not a perfect illustration, but I like to use the camera angle thing because uh, it helps us to realize, just like on a movie set, if you've ever been on a movie set, you've got all the different camera angles and they capture different things for different reasons. Uh, but we have four gospel account writers writing to different audiences, emphasizing different things. And uh, I don't think it's wrong to look at the different camera angles sometimes to fill in the details to say, oh, that wasn't Matthew's intent to capture that, but it helps us to kind of see it. John 6, 21. They were glad to take him into the boat. Yeah, I bet they were. Um, (laughs) Then it says, and immediately, John uses the word there too, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That would have been something. <laughs> right? Put your seatbelts on, boys. Here we go. <laughs> it's meant to be read as supernatural. There, there's no earthly explanation for what just happened. That's why we worship Him. That's why we trust in Him. That's why He's the unique, ultimate Christ, acting Christ-like. Fascinating stuff. And now number seven, finally, and it's a repeat. Christ acts Christ-like in healing We've seen it already. We will see it again. In 34, we'll wrap up the chapter. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, or Gennesaret, however you'd like to pronounce it. It's right below Capernaum is where it is, uh, that region. So they land back on the west side. Then 35 says, uh, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. Let it be known, please, this very day in this very place, let it be known. Priority number one, priority number one from this text is to not compel us to be imitators of Jesus. There are texts like that. This is not one of them. 
Priority number one is not compelling us to be imitators of Jesus. Let me put it another way. Priority number one in this text is not to get us to be Christ-like. We're Christians. We belong to Christ. Priority number one from this text, clearly based upon the wording, is to get us to trust in Him as Peter trusted in Him, to deliver Him. Priority number one is clearly that, and following on its heels is what? It's worship. To worship Him. We can rest in Him, and then we worship Him. And if we worship Him, now we are getting, getting into our actions because worship in the New Testament is an end in and of itself, but it leads to wanting to live for His honor and for His glory like Romans chapter 12 would have us to do. So first and foremost, Jesus is great. Trust in Him. Don't trust in me. Don't trust in yourselves. Don't trust in your circumstances. Trust in Him. Worship Him. And if you're worshiping him, you'll want to live for his honor and for his glory. Amen? Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for these riveting kinds of texts. We're grateful for history. We're grateful for a perfect record of history and for all of the diversity uh, that we see in the life of Jesus. At the same time, it's so unified. Again and again, he proves himself to be trustworthy as the great Savior may we find ourselves trusting in Him and trusting Him and worshiping Him, living for His honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.